we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we are continuing our weekly series with various interesting and accomplished people. We usually talk about science and medicine and COVID topics, but that's really only a taking off point for possible things that we could discuss. If listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. I'm very happy to introduce today's guest, Dr. Merrill Nass. Dr. Nass is a board certified internist and biological warfare epidemiologist and an expert in anthrax. She has testified to Congress long ago in November 2001 on preparing a medical response to bioterrorism. Dr. Nass hosts her own blog site at anthraxvaccine.blogspot.com. Additionally, she's been widely quoted in a number of articles on COVID and other infectious diseases. So Meryl, let's start. What's been on your mind today? Well, the first thing is that I usually don't use that site anymore, and my blogging is now at Substack. So it's at merylnass.substack.com. Oh, good. Um, what's on my mind most of the time these days is the WHO and the way it is being used by the U.S. government and by other, uh, I would call them globalist entities, to centralize control in the world using the guise of pandemic preparedness. Um, and so I can talk about any aspect of that, that that you'd like to get into. Well, so for me, this is probably even more nefarious than you know, because I see what comes to schools of public health, the students who are coming to schools of public health looking for um, epidemiology training, MPH training, and there is a very large fraction of them who have medicalized politics, basically have said, we can solve political questions by medicalizing them. So poverty is a medical question. You know, gun control is a medical question. Inner cities education is a medical question. So as long now everything's been medicalized, now we can use public health tools to solve medical questions. And so we can enforce political desires by medicalizing them and making them into public health. And public health, as you know, does not have any constitutional guarantees. It has no checks and balances. It does whatever its practitioners want with and and very even difficulty pushing back in court because public health administrative incompetence is a matter of state entities removing those people from their jobs, not on taking them out by court action. If they're incompetent in their jobs, they, they lose their job and nothing worse. So they basically co-opted this whole system to take control of political desires through making everything into public health and public health tools for which we have little recourse. So right. that I see is the, is the bigger problem because then the, the WHO enfranchises that army of do-gooder activists to do their their political hench jobs by calling it all public health. Yes, 
Um, and the the G20, I think, came up with this idea a number of years ago that they had to make their other uh, programs health-related, in particular climate change. So the WHO has even said that, you know, they could potentially call climate emergencies and shut us, do, do a lockdown for a climate emergency. Um, but you're absolutely right that there's a peculiar concept named One Health, uh, which tries to wrap up the entire world into health. So it started out as uh, humans and animals, that, the, that there were diseases that could be transmitted between humans and animals called zoonoses, and they required uh, doctors and veterinarians to work together to solve these problems rather than us being siloed. So that was a reasonable thing to talk about. But somehow then plants got added in and then ecosystems got added in. And so by by the time you're done now, everything in the world is part of One Health. And One Health has been institutionalized so that the federal government is supposed to um, use One Health in, in all the federal agencies. The CDC has a big One Health office. You can get degrees in One This has all happened in the last uh, 10 or 12 years. You can get degrees in One Health. Um, the, everyone working at the WHO is trying to talk about One Health and how important it is, but it, it doesn't really have a good definition. Nobody knows what it is. They're supposed to use the One Health approach which doesn't really mean anything. And, and basically it's just all an excuse to, to roll it all up into a you know nice package with a bow and allow the director general of the WHO to give orders about it, whether it be ecosystems, plants, wild animals, pets, livestock, or humans. Yeah, I'm sure viruses have rights too. One, you know, I mean, if, <laughs> Right, um, the the whole <clears throat> it's one health is predicated on all organisms created equal. It's and crazy, you know. But the Lancet editors, the, an editorial in the Lancet last January, basically said, you know, we. I don't even remember what they called it. Um, some sort of equity, you know, equity and one health meant that we have to consider animals, you know, basically as equal to humans. Um, I understand. The, the editor of The Lancet is is a, a credulous ignoramus, and, yeah. uh, and he has no business editing anything political. And he's been there a very long time. I'm aware of his history. <laughs> uh, he's, he's committed a lot of errors in recent years, although in early years, he was open about the powers of, of the top medical journals and uh, how they were, uh, you know, whitewashing pharma's uh, advertising. That is, that is true. Uh, same with Marsha Angel at, at, at New England Journal. They both talked about the corruption of the medical journals. Then he just swallowed the corruption and became corrupt. Yes, um, exactly. And Richard Smith of the BMJ. Yes. And, and Richard Smith, I don't think flipped, and Marsha Angel certainly didn't flip, but Richard Horton flipped badly yes. and has never published apologized for the nonsense he's published. I understand. And the, you know, I think that this is part of the corruption of pharma that addiction to uh, advertising revenue uh, 
is the biggest problem. It's not that the, they they use the revenue to support the journal, but they don't try to get alternative sources of revenue. So they have to comply with the diktats of their advertisers. And yes. pharma knows this and, and pharma gets double the benefit of their advertising budget because not only do they get the, the public presence uh, and industrial pre presence of, of their public relations, they get control of the messaging that comes out of the entities that put out their advertising. And, and because of that, they, you know, they can conform and, and dominate the media on their messages and, and not allow contrary, rational, legitimate messaging. Yes, exactly. Um, and he's to come to this. Before, yes. You, you, uh, the Lancet is now not owned by the Wackley family, but by Elsevier. And so you've got a for-profit company, you know, unlike at least for what it's worth, the New England Journal is still owned by the Mass Medical Society. But the Lancet, it, you know, it, Elsevier has been terrible. They have uh, forced retraction of valid papers because they didn't like the messaging that the exactly. editors and the reviewers all supported. The scientific content was good and the publisher removed them anyway. The, yes. the, they are. That's another corrupt pharma associated entity, just like everything that we've been fighting in the last four years. It's so, true. It's true. So many problems in medicine. You know, the, this idea of, of One Health it strikes me as just another one of the idiotic ideas to destroy the quality of human life in, in, our, in our world, that we have used enlightenment values to value meritocracy, which has created competitiveness, which has created intellectual accomplishment, which has created practical, tangible outcomes of benefit in society to everybody in their role, wherever they are in society, has the opportunity to uh, obtain aspects of that benefit. The number of people who have cell phones in the world is astonishing. The, the poorest people in the world practically still have cell phones. If they don't have TVs, if they don't have refrigerators, you know, that our technological development has followed because of meritocracy and the forces to remove that out of society can only damage the, the quality of and standard of living for everybody and not just we wealthy Americans who are, you know, are going to not take um, Boeing planes for the next few years until Boeing gets its house in order or goes bankrupt, but, uh, but other things that we have economic alternatives because of our standard of living. Other places don't have high standard of living and have less ability to cope with all of this non these nonsensical ideas that are being foisted on them from th these morons with money. You know, the Bill Gates-like yeah. people yeah. in the World Economic Forum are morons with money. But don't you think there's a an ulterior motive, which is really to take down society as we know it, and they're just using various um, policies and narratives to do that? And they, they saw that they could you know, take the word equity and, and twist it and yes. make it appear that they were doing something good when in fact they're, you know, 
There, there's oh, no plausibility has like, been the law. People lie, lie, lie. Have lied through our eternity, through through the last hundred years of of neo science and and so on. Lie about everything. They use one word to mean the exact opposite, and on and on and on. I think there's going to be a limit to this process of economic destruction of the general population. Look what happened in Sri Lanka when the president said you're going to make fertilizer with, without carbon dioxide or whatever it was that that um, you know that make grow plants without fertilization of fertilizer. Right. Everyone had to become an organic farmer immediately. Right, and and basically. You cannot starve people without them physically rioting. And that's what they did. They drove him out of office physically, violently. And that's what's going to happen. And it'll happen here too. And as much as guns don't fight tanks, there's a lot more people with guns than there are tanks in the United States. And, you know, we don't want it to come to that. But but if these people force their way to, to the level of starvation by buying up the crop seeds and buying up the the uh, land and, and forcing the non-production of food and we can't get food, people will riot. They have nothing to lose. When you make give people nothing to lose, they, they become violent. And the, and the German farmers are already rioting with their they? tractors. Oh, you haven't seen that? Yeah. No. Thousands of farmers in uh, Germany have blocked many, many highways and roads because the government said, well, where uh, they had had some uh, uh, tax benefit, some they were able to buy fuel for their tractors cheaply and for their equipment, you know, whatever they have. And the governments were taking suddenly we're taking all of those benefits away. Now you're going to pay the same price as everybody else, which is several times higher than it was, you know, before COVID, before before the Nord Stream was blown up. And um, the farmer said, "There's no way that we can sell." food and make a profit we'll lose on what we're doing and they got together and they said enough is enough and it hasn't been covered in the mainstream media but apparently it the huge huge um demonstrations with all the tractors out on the roads blocking them oh good so they're domestic terrorists now they're doing the, the canadian the number on them i think the government uh, at least partly backed down and i'm not sure if the farmers have accepted it um, government said, okay, we're not going to make you pay the full price for fuel right now. We'll we'll do it slowly. Um, we'll see if, if that's good enough or the farmers see that this is just, uh, that, you know, they're going down a bad road and uh, they best to, to nip it in the bud. Well, what are, I, I really don't understand what the government there thinks because if they put the farmers out of business, who's going to be eating anything? Well, that's it. Well, that's what they tried to, you know, Holland had the most productive farms in the world. There was second largest food exporter in the world after the U.S. And um, the the EU said they had a, a nitrogen target. They created a nitrogen minister. Can you imagine a minister of nitrogen? And they said the cows are belching too much methane. And so they had to reduce their, their cows and their farm. They had a and 3,000 farms in certain areas. Um, it, it, and they That's were so bizarre planning... because if you feed cows a 2% shellfish diet that they stop making methane. Yeah, exactly. Or, right, doesn't, I don't know about shellfish, but uh, seaweed would, would do it and other, yeah. other additives. And, and in fact, I've got an article published at Yale where researchers at Yale, your university, studied this. 
Anyway, the, they, they don't, you know, there have been three excuses about the cows. First, at first it was that their, their urine and stool were um, damaging the waterways. Then that didn't work. So then they went into the belching of too much methane. And everyone's ignored the fact that whoever, uh, presumably the U.S. government paid for it, blew up Nord Stream, um, sent as much uh, carbon dioxide, actually it was methane, because natural gas is mostly methane, into the atmosphere that would have powered the city of Paris for a year or the entire country of Denmark for a year. Right. So they were, the British, fine the were throwing that much methane into the atmosphere, but they want to get rid of cows. Um, yeah. the, the whole thing is absolutely, you know, ludicrous, but it's real. It's real because people have insane religious beliefs. They're not traditional religious beliefs. They're they're modern fetishes, fetish beliefs at the level of become tantamount secular religion. That they believe in all this nonsense that. I and you and others have been railing about in the modern period that people believe the most astonishingly stupid things, and especially intellectuals, and especially people coming out of the universities, that normal people in the field, the people who work with their hands for a living, would never believe any of the things that they see in their daily life that they know. But people coming out of universities believe simplistic theories that X equals Y and, and no real data need apply. It is extraordinary. Um, luckily, we have more regular people than we do intellectuals in the United States. Yeah, but the intellectuals have prominence. They're the feeding ground of, of, of government, and um, right. that's been the problem. Yes, well, and, and all, all the media. But, uh, you know, I think we have a groundswell of people who know that all this is nonsense, and they are sitting back, you know, very anxious about the future, as are the people who believe this. Everybody's anxious about the future. But there are a lot of people who are not going to go along, and they're the ones with the guns when push comes to shove. So. I hope they're not going to go along. I hope they, they that this becomes more visible. Well, we're getting to a, a commercial break point, so let's take a break. We'll be right back. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Dr. Merrill Nass. Well, one thing I wanted to uh, ask you about what we had discussed about talking today was you got, I think you got your start in bioweapons in the anthrax period. Am I right? And yes. I don't know what provoked your interest in that other than the absurdity of, of what was happening after 
Uh, no, actually, I go back 35 years with this. Okay. <laughs> so, um, uh, what happened was I was living in Amherst, Massachusetts, and um, I was a member of Physicians for Social Responsibility. I was in my 30s, and students uh, were investigating Pentagon contracts that UMass had. UMass was in Amherst, and found some uh, that they thought were germ warfare contracts uh, with the, the where the Pentagon had a contract with uh, a professor to research anthrax vaccine. And so they brought their complaints to a meeting I attended. And I said, I don't think vaccine research is biological warfare or germ warfare research. So some of the men at the meeting thought I was a naive fool and, and said, you're wrong, you know, you have to protect the troops, and that's why they're studying anthrax vaccines. So they said, why don't you read the contract, you know, read read the guy's CV and report back to us next month. So I, I was kind of annoyed with them. And so like, yeah, I will, you know, I'll, I'll tell you. So um, I was given them those materials, and it turned out that the contract, which was titled Studies to Produce a Better Anthrax Vaccine, was actually studies moving uh, the plasmids around in different bacillus species in, in a primitive sort of genetic engineering uh, work. And it was a Pentagon contract. It was the Biological Defense Research Program which at Fort Detrick, which had evolved uh, from the old offensive program after Nixon shut the offensive program down. I later learned that this professor had actually been working in the offensive program previously, and then had moved to UMass when they shut the offensive program down, but continued uh, doing research for that, you know, with Pentagon contracts from that program. Anyway, um, I thought, why is he, why are they titling this one way and it's really something else? I, I better look into that. So I uh, decided to do so, and I decided to look at all the recent anthrax epidemics, epizootics in the world. And I just randomly picked 15 years. And I this went. This is the anthrax epidemics in animals. No, in humans. In humans. Oh, in humans. Okay. And okay. um, so I collected all the papers that have been published um, on, I don't know, about 15 different anthrax epizootics that had happened um, and discovered that the biggest one, which occurred in Rhodesia, which is now called Zimbabwe, had an entirely different pattern than all the others. And uh, you know, when I read the papers, there were uh, three or four papers written about it. I and they were hard to get. You know, they were from the um, East African uh, Central, sorry, the Central African Journal of Medicine, which was only collected in one library in the United States. So um, it was a bit of work to get all this stuff. But uh, anyway, it became very clear that this was not. I, you know, I had. In doing all my reading, I had learned a lot about anthrax, and I knew this was not the natural pattern. And I, um, you know, came to under understand anthrax very deeply. I wound up spending three years driving around to all the medical libraries, basically in Massachusetts, and some in Connecticut, and um, 
you know, reading everything they had on anthrax. I read articles from the 1830s in the old Boston Journal of Medicine, the precursor to the New England Journal, you know, in the Countway, in the basement of the Countway Library at Harvard. And these were, papers were crumbling in my fingers. So, um, so I got to know about what anthrax was like in the 1830s and subsequently. And it turned out there were very few, if any other Americans, who had ever done anything like this. <laughs> and um, anyway, I wrote several papers starting that were published starting in 1991 um, about what I learned. And I analyzed this Rhodesian epidemic and was able to prove it was due to biological warfare. And then the Gulf War was happening and I was you know, I I was very much uh, desired as someone who knew about biological warfare and anthrax and, um, you know, became a spokesperson and did a lot of interviews at that time. And then subsequently, because, you know, you probably remember when we went to medical school, anthrax wasn't even taught. There was right. only one case a decade in the United States. Right, and we learned about it theoretically as a, as a bacteria, but but nothing of any real clinical importance. Right, right. I don't even think I got that. So, um, so really, nobody knew about it. We just didn't. Ha it, basically, it had died out. It it had existed because it's so rare, and people don't give it to each other. They only get it in the United States from. Uh, using animal products that may have anthrax spores in them. And that's generally um, a bone meal that may have come from Africa or somewhere from an animal that died of anthrax or uh, playing the drums and the, the drum being made from the skin of an animal that died of anthrax and that may have uh, some spores in it. So basically I, that- I thought that anthrax was a soil organism. Am I wrong about that? It is. It, no, no, no. It's a soil organism and animals get it from browsing, from eating uh, plants low to the ground during areas when, when there's relative, you know, a drought or a flood or, you know, they have a hard time getting- plants higher up. And so they ingest the spores and the spores, um, in my view, this, this was controversial. Um, I sort of came up with this theory that basically they only get it after something special has happened uh, ecologically in terms of weather that, or, or floods or droughts that have allowed anthrax to germinate in the soil and outperform other soil organisms and then resporulate. And it's only then, because animals only get it maybe every 20 or 30 years in a particular spot, only under very limited um, conditions. Anyway. <laughs> so, so anthrax lives more in our labs than it does in the real world. Exactly, exactly. So uh, what happened then in, in 1991 that, that you were you were following this and you had these theories and you were publishing on? So what happened? Well, I um, I published a paper about how the U.S. Army was not following its own mission statement or the Biological Weapons Convention or several other things and were 
doing research that went beyond the bounds of what they were they alleged they were allowed to do. Um, I talked about how one might do um, inspections to uh, of of outbreaks to find out whether whether they were due to biological warfare. And I published this paper, which um, is rather unique in the literature, um, investigating the Rhodesian epidemic and showing that none of the explanations for how it could have been a natural event held water and that it must be due to biological warfare. I think it came from the Wuhan live food market. But anyway, that's an aside. <laughs> uh, I started thinking about this because of uh, started reading uh, Bobby Kennedy's newest book on the Wuhan cover-up, and the first seven or eight chapters talk about various aspects of biowarfare and the history of it in the United States, elsewhere, but mostly in the United States. And the extensiveness of it is astonishing to me that, you know, I knew about that there were some things that we have been working with, but not the degree of the wild and eager engagement of scientists in doing this, thinking that equating um, offensive bioweapons with defense, defense of military technology, that the idea that none of these agents would have blowback, that the, you know, that in theory, every one of these agents was made in parallel with a vaccine or a countermeasure to protect from it. And yet that obviously didn't happen probably for a lot of these bioweapons. I don't even know if it happened for the chemical weapons that, that have been made. And the hundreds of tons of sarin gas, for example, that were made and are probably stored somewhere in the United States waiting for some explosion to, to damage half the country that we don't take seriously the risks of adverse events of a larger or subversive kind and think that we're protecting ourselves adequately. This is how the Wuhan Institute of Virology could build a BSL-4 lab by a French company that knows how to build BSL-4 labs and yet have it run with such incompetence that they couldn't get the air conditioning to work properly, and that a the virus, the COVID virus, either leaked out, if it wasn't intentionally released, it leaked out of there because of human errors in running such a high technology lab. For, you know, China may, as I've said many times, has a lack of common sense, but they have a lot of technical, technical expertise. They can follow technical rules very precisely. And so for them to have an accident of that kind is way beyond what one would expect for their ability to follow technical rules. You know, so as let, me, let me challenge you on that. Um, we had uh, labs, I don't know if it was a BSL-3 or BSL-4, but we had uh, high biosafety level labs at Plum Island off the coast of Long Island, New York State. And these notoriously had failures in their uh, negative pressure system and many other things. Um, their generator didn't work when the power went off. You know, all, there were so many documented potential leaks out of that place. We should not 
really be blaming China for sloppiness because we have evidenced the identical sloppiness, but it doesn't usually get into the media. The, the U.S. Pardon me? I think we're sloppier, to be honest. I, I, I mean, who knows who is sloppier, but the United States has, has reported since um, the late 1990s when they started the Select Agent Program, which is a program where if you're doing research on biological warfare agents that have been designated by CDC and USDA, and there's about 50 of them, they change the, the, them every so often. Um, if you're, but anthrax and, and SARS viruses are among them. If you're doing research on those organisms, you are required to report accidents, spills, leaks, and um, you know animals gone missing or thefts. And the Select Agent Program receives 200 reports a year in the United States. And of course, most lab, many labs probably don't even report. You know, most scientists don't want to be investigated. So if they know they have a minor problem, they may or may not report. But 200 a year in the U.S. alone. So I think that if you're going to do research on these organisms, you are going to have leaks. There's just no way around it. Um, if you have too many, the CDC will shut you down. The CDC has shut down Fort Detrick in the past, um, but the CDC has had its own leaks. The the NIH and the FDA have had um, smallpox lying or lying around in uh, cardboard boxes that nobody knew existed. Um, you know when when all smallpox in the world was supposed to have been confined to one lab in Russia and one lab at CDC. So. Um, the thing is, and now let me go back and say, I'm also not convinced that the pandemic happened by accident and happened through a lab leak because the response to the pandemic was so lockstep in all Western countries, and yet the response was um, illogical, uh, not medically justified, et cetera but they all rolled out the same response. France, in fact, had started the process to make hydroxychloroquine not an over-the-counter drug in October of 2019, as if they knew something was gonna happen. Yes, the French knew that something was happening. There's no question about that. And they did it because of their connections to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, because Stefan Bonsell, who was the previous CEO of Moderna, yeah, no, and not Moderna. I'm not Moderna. The current CEO of Moderna, the previous CEO of BioMirio, had had built the Wuhan Institute of Virology BSL4 lab. That project started, I think, about 2014. It took three years until they opened it. Inserm held an inauguration facility in January of 2017. He was there for that. Uh, that no, was her husband. Uh, the head of, of Inserm, the French Health National right. Health and Medical name? Research, Jacques Levy, was was uh, Agnès Buzan's husband. Um, she was the Minister of Health in, in France, and he was the head of Inserm. Right, and, so and she was, was the one was who there. started the process of getting rid of HCQ. That's, that's right. They were up to their necks in in the in, in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They knew what was going on. They knew, you know, the Moderna patents in 2017 had the genetic code for a long stretch of, of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. The whole thing was engineered. They used, the, the Wuhan people used our technology for, for engineering it. And so we and they were partnering together to make this 
product and that whether it leaked out or it was intentionally leaked, I can't address, but it was a bioengineered virus. And to address your point of why everything was in lockstep, that comes about why I'm even interested in talking about biowarfare, which is that I believe that the entirety of our response has been a cover-up of the entire biowarfare program, not just COVID. That COVID played a very teeny role in our biowarfare program in a more general way, that it wasn't a biowarfare agent, but it was part of the people who were doing this biowarfare research. It was in their portfolio of things. And I and, know, I know, I would disagree. I think if you if you look at the spike genome, you can identify a number of things that were added to it or changed that um, were probably designed to make it more toxic, more pathogenic. All right, well, we actually have to take a break. So let's take a break. We'll talk about that when we come back. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news, liberty and justice for all. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Dr. Merrill Ness. Well, we were talking about SARS-CoV-2, the, the virus that makes COVID, and what was engineered into it. Now, I've said from my genetic knowledge of its sequence and my having investigated what its overlaps with the Moderna patents from 2017 and before, that the furin cleavage site and adjacent to that, the um, RDRP landing site, that's the enzyme that, that the uh, the RNA polymerase enzyme that, that reproduces the RNA for the virus lands there to facilitate crossing over, getting this whole sequence from the environment of the culture environment into the genome of the virus itself. That was in Moderna's patented HMSHG gene, which in a uh, variant form promotes replication of 
SARS-CoV-2 and other viruses, and it was used as part of the culture medium uh, in the time to promote this process of, of generating mutants uh, that were more human infective. And, and this whole thing has been discussed in, in published papers. I'm not the first one to think of this, uh, but I do understand it, and I did do all the um, bioinformatics to, to prove to myself that everything they said was correct in all of the the, um, the, the federal NIH databases and, and the patent and, and so on. So as to the question of whether there are toxic other sequences in the spike protein of the virus that were engineered, it's hard to know whether they, they were intentionally engineered as harmful for a bioweapon or whether they arose because of similarities from predecessor bat viruses, coronaviruses, that evolved them because there are some other commonality functions of evolutionary benefit to those viruses in those bats. And there are sequences that are have an analogy with some spike, some snake toxins, and a few other things that sound freaky, but I don't know of their actual relevance. The spike protein itself is a damaging pro-inflammatory protein that binds to the inside of blood vessels, tiny and larger blood vessels, and creates foci of inflammation, which causes cells and the immune system to stick to them and deposit calcium and fat and block arteries and, and so on and, and, uh, in a feedback cycle of damage. And that's only one of, the, of the, the things that the spike protein does. I doubt really that that was preconceived to be engineered to do that, because, but because there are lots of biological molecules that are toxic and harmful outside of their normal places where they convey the function of benefits to the host that made them in the first place. So I really can't address the, how that got there. I understand, It's reasonable to think that it was engineered, but I don't think that that's really enough to establish that other than the engineering of the 19 long segment, the furin cleavage site and the landing pad segment. Um, so there are analyses, I've forgotten what it's called, codon, the, the codons aren't natural for, um, you know, it's been oh, yes. years yes. since I looked at this, but. Yes, so I, for the, the arginine codons, yeah. I think um, has a rare coding for one of them, the CCG, I think that it's, that's in a, so in the genetic coding of proteins, of amino acids in the genetic code, some amino acids have multiple different ways that they can be encoded. Some are unique with only one three-letter code. Others can have three, six, or nine, or let, whatever. Let me help explain this to your audience. So, so there's about 21 amino acids, and there are 64 permutations of three amino acids. So um, nucleotides, you know, adenine, et cetera. The letters of the genetic code, that's right. The, the four letters, it, four different, slightly different letters for DNA and RNA of the genetic code um, are coded for by amino acids and three amino acids together um, code for one nucleotide. Yeah, and I have so it backwards. Three, three, nucleotides code, three nucleotides code for one amino acid. Sorry. Oh, gee, sorry. So um, usually uh, this kind of virus will, so there are 64 possibilities for about 
21 amino 21 acids. naturally yes. occurring amino acids. And um, so some of these, some most amino acids can be coded for with several different um, codes of three nucleotides. And generally, they they may be one, a certain amino acid in this kind of virus may have one code or two codes. But what was found in uh, SARS-CoV-2 is that unusual patterns of um, code, these three um, nucleotides together are called a codon. And so there were unusual patterns of the codons, which is essentially a dead giveaway. I mean, when you get to the point where the, it's one in a million or one in a billion chance that it could have happened naturally using these codons, it becomes a dead giveaway that this- well, there was a reason. This is part of the engineering of the the furin cleavage site. The, the codons, so different codons that code for the same amino acid have different frequencies that in, in life, that one codon might be common, it codes for say arginine, but another codon for arginine might be rare. And so your point is that there were there were rare codons for arginine in the, the, the genetic sequence of this virus. The answer to that is not only that, but the rare coding for arginine was in a place where perhaps because it's rare, it slows the polymerase enzyme down. It creates a, not quite a pause, but a slowdown of the end. So this is the enzyme that replicates the virus genetic information. And it gets to this point where it has to switch tracks, switch off of the, the, the virus and onto the a new sequence in the Moderna gene that it's going to copy into the virus. In order to do that, you have to help it along. And the way to help it along is to slow it down. And so by insertion of these rare codons, it doesn't change the sequence that it's copying, that it's making, but it does slow down the enzyme, giving it a chance to make the mistake of switching strands as it's copying. So there was a function for that. And that was also that also is more evidence of its intentional bioengineering, just like the, what this whole sequence that a copying was copying was doing. That's also part of the smoking gun evidence that this was human engineered. So I'm sending you an article in the chat um, that was very popular that talks about this analysis of whether it was uh, natural or uh, lab made. I think everyone at this point will agree it's lab made. And the only thing yes. we're arguing about is how, how many different um, changes were made in the lab and yes. you know, possibly many and possibly a few. Well, what's astonishing to me is the, e the evil cleverness of the people who did this, that the knowledge down to the level of if you switch these genetic letters, can you control the process that this uh, error gets incorporated to make the new sequence that we want? All of this is a level of molecular biology and the, and the knowledge of the working of life of, of viruses that is really quite astonishing to me that, that we actually know enough to be able to do this with this degree of precision. But I guess that's where science, you know, evil science has gone 
to to do this for nefarious purposes because we're not doing this to make a, a treatment for cancer or a prevention of cancer. We're doing this to make a toxic agent to kill people. Yes, and the excuse is that we're we're making it because we want to see what it would be like if someone else made it, and then we can develop a vaccine against it. Except the for the fact that, that we made it five years ago or six years ago and never developed a vaccine for it. Exactly. Um, and uh, Robert Redfield said to his knowledge, none of this type of gain-of-function research has ever resulted in any drug or vaccine, which um, should make should give everybody listening to this pause. And let's go back to where we started. Gain-of-function research is a euphemism for biological warfare, germ warfare research, the way you take a microorganism and make it more um, pathogenic, more dangerous, more deadly, and or more transmissible, or often both. And I posit that uh, COVID was, the, the virus that caused COVID was made both more transmissible and more uh, pathogenic deadly than its natural uh, cousin. I agree with you completely. I think the, the biological level evidence has established that. Um, and the only thing that saved humanity basically is Muller's ratchet that respiratory viruses seek their optimal replication conditions, which is to make people sick, but not too sick, so that they right. don't stay home, so that they and, go to and work. And they mutate quickly. And yes, and yes. they mutate, of course. Right. And, and they and mutate to a less pathogenic state. Well, right. That's what happened. Omicron arose, got was even more infectious, and recognized that it didn't need to invade the lungs in order to work. And that's what happened. And, and because of that, we have an, a flu-like illness instead of a potentially calamitous original COVID that did was treatable, but still was a much more severe illness compared to Omicron infection. Right. And, and so it's, it's put Omicron into the level of ho-hum. It's just another one of the annoyances of modern life that we more or less take in stride you know, just like we take flu in stride and common cold in stride and RSV in stride and the other 20 or 30 respiratory viruses that we don't even know the names of that we take in stride because they're mostly annoyances and mostly people get through them. And the ones who don't have such severe chronic conditions, comorbidities, that those comorbidities need to be treated better in order to protect them. And of course, um, like the Tom Lehrer song, and everybody takes vitamin D. Right. Everybody should be taking vitamin D because that's what keeps our immune system functional enough to keep us from being severely damaged by these viruses. That that as you, one gets older, the immune system slows down and becomes less aggressive. And vitamin D just helps to keep the immune system from failing to keep up with all of the cytokines and other body responses to infections that would overpower and deposit debris in the lungs, which is how what COVID did in the first place. People didn't die from COVID. They died from pneumonias caused by an immune system overreaction to COVID. And that's why hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin were so great at the beginning of the pandemic, because they prevented that immune overreaction. They kept people out of the hospital and especially from dying because they didn't get the immune system overreaction to, to deposit all that debris in the lungs. So the body would just respond to the virus the way it normally does 
march out all of its cytokines and factors and antibodies and, and cellular mediated, mediated antibodies and, and so on and, and take out the, the, the virus and, and get rid of it without leaving a trail of damage and destruction in its wake the way it did when it got into the lungs. And that's why Omicron is so, so much better and much more flu-like. Does that mean nobody gets? No, people still do poorly with sometimes with these infections. People die from the common cold on occasion, but it's usually very sick people for other reasons. So yeah. the, the, this, you know, our whole point about COVID now is it's so last year. You know, I don't care that the, the fear-mongering of the scariant of the week uh, you know, is is basically it's either the CDC trying to make itself sound like it's still relevant or journals or newspapers or media trying to sound like they're still relevant. So we'll buy them and, and read them that it's at the level of ho-hum. We should not be dealing with COVID as if it's anything other than another one of the respiratory infections of the fall, if it even is seasonal, that we we deal with by just good, normal hygiene taking vitamin D and eating well, sleeping well, exercising well. But I think we should all be annoyed that, in fact, uh, you know, governments have added to the burden of infectious uh, respiratory viruses we have to suffer from. And what I learned about at Children's Health Defense, and I haven't studied it myself, um, is that there is a literature indicating that RSV came from a lab too, that there was no RSV in the world until it uh, it was played with. It, it had been an animal virus, I guess, um, in, in labs uh, near Washington, D.C. So I haven't studied that, but I think if we're going to have to face a higher burden of infectious diseases because of government playing around with things it has no business doing, uh, you know, and that we have international treaties that are supposed to prevent them from doing, um, you know, we, we need to pay attention. You know, we, in addition, you know, it's very good that COVID is not killing very many people anymore. That's great. And I'm thrilled about it. Um, but, you know, I don't want the next one. And, and I, now I resent, uh, you know, my son was going to come visit me this weekend and now he's not because he came down with COVID, you know, so it's still interfering with my life. Right. So he'll come next weekend or whatever. But, you know, I mean, uh, I know it's an annoyance factor now, not a life-threatening factor. Now, and I agree with you, adding to that burden, the burden is already high enough that we don't like it. And adding to that burden just makes it worse. Maybe Lyme disease also is, a, is another one that could have come out of what, Plum Island? I don't know. Yes. You know, uh, there's uh, we have allowed ourselves to be manipulated by spycraft, by the industry, by the, the bioweapons industrial complex that clouds everything in so much secrecy until things get out. And then instead of being, uh, uh, you know, telling the truth, they they destroy even more by trying to cover it up. Yes. And, and, and that to me is what is the motivation for why uh, the, all of the governments across the world were in lockstep because they were all threatened, because they all were believed the same 
fear-mongering that we believe that was put out by our government or our administrative state that everybody's going to die unless you do what we tell you to, to save you. And they all believe that. And, you know, yes, the, the, the some of them were, you know, we can't assume that they were all stupid. How How is it that you and I were able to figure out that we weren't doing the right things to protect? Even if COVID was exactly what they told us it was, we still weren't doing exactly the right things to protect ourselves. You might notice that we don't work for the government and we are not in the government and we our voices have relatively little sway over what governments did in spite of, of our messages. Unfortunately, you know, as much as we do and we say and we keep out there and we should, and people hear us and a large fraction of the population knows of us and knows what we've been saying, the governments are going to do what they want to do for their reasons that they think they're entitled to do. And even when we change governments on the elected side, we still have trouble replacing the the swamp side. And, and that's a big problem. And unfortunately, we've run out of time for today. So we're going to have to continue this discussion, which I definitely want to do uh, another time. And I hope our listeners have enjoyed the discussion. And if you have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. But Meryl, thank you very much. This has been fun and, and interesting. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And please come back again next week. <laughs>